well, the fun is over. <laughs> and now uh, we're going we're gonna to teach. But I, I really appreciate Ross sharing that today. Um, you know, one of the, the most common things that I heard after Hurricane Michael, like when we were talking with people and trying to help and do things, one of the most common phrases that I heard afterwards, can you guess what it was? That's it. Yeah. That was what I heard all the time. I just can't wait for things to get back to normal. I just got to get back to, you know, I know I said it. Maybe you said it uh, as well. Uh, but, you know, what does that mean <laughs> when we say that? Like, what, what are we saying when we want things to go back to normal? Okay. <laughs> and that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> advancing from the stone age and back into to those kinds of things. But, but also we're also looking at yeah, the routines that we normally had whenever we as humans are confronted with some disruption to our normal routines, whether it's trauma or hardship or catastrophe, like we, we faced or just sometimes going through confusing periods of time where we don't know what to do or what the right thing to do, our first response, when the initial excitement begins to wane, our first response is to try to return to familiar patterns. We desperately try to reset and get back to some place of contentment that we knew before we experienced this disruption. In fact, you know, it's honestly not easy to pry people away from what's familiar. You know, how many here sit in the same spot every time, every Sunday, you know? And like, how many here like stand over a person if they're in your chair? We like the things that are familiar to us. We saw this happen last week in the Gospel of John when Peter and John, when they went to the empty tomb and they couldn't figure out what was going on. Remember, they went back to themselves. They went back to what was familiar to them. So in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see that these themes continue. And we get the feeling, kind of, that John is trying to drive home a point for us. We're coming back to our study in the Gospel of John. Uh, we're actually now in the final chapter uh, of this, of the, as, as we've been going through it, chapter by chapter. If you've got a way of following along, uh, either with a Bible app or an old school analog Bible, if you'll go to John chapter 21, please. Uh, it, the, the last chapter of John is traditionally called the epilogue. And if you remember on your, uh, if you've got a bullet and you'll see on the back, there's a structure for the book of John. It began with a prologue. And so it ends with a prologue, uh, an epilogue rather. An epilogue is a piece of writing at the end of a work of literature usually used to kind of bring closure to the work or, you know, kind of finish it off. In chapter 20, we read about the risen Jesus appearing to his disciples and then appearing to, to Thomas, and we looked at what it means to us that the risen Jesus is present in, in our circumstances, is present with us in all that we're experiencing. And I think, about, I think about the disciples during that period of time when Jesus was showing up like this. I mean, this must have been a, a staggering and stupefying event all at once, not knowing what's going on here. And I'm sure that they were anticipating that fire was going to fall from the sky at any moment or legions of angels were going to show up and drive out the Roman occupation or something like that. But nothing like that happens. 
The disciples are still fugitives. Rome is still the superpower. The religious authorities are still calling the shots from the outward appearance of everything. Nothing has changed. And in that light, the epilogue of John almost feels anticlimactic because it's tempting to, 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 to look at chapter 20 and think, dude, you should have ended it there. Because, I mean, you got this big reveal. You got Thomas's confession. It's just so cool and, and exciting. But John's epilogue actually does the work of bridging the excitement of chapter 20 with the ongoing mission of Jesus's followers in the wake of his resurrection. There's a, a quietness to it that I think deserves our attention. And it can guide our expectations as well as our grasp of what this life is all about and where we go from here in light of the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. So those are some of the things we're going to contemplate this morning. If you're there in John chapter 1, we're going to begin starting with verse 1. It says, Later Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there, Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. They don't need names. Simon Peter, Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. Oh, we'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. So our story opens with seven of Jesus' disciples heading back home to Galilee, you know, back to familiar territory, back to their old lives. And why not? I mean, you know, what else are they supposed to do in this situation? Really, it's, it's easy for us to sit back and think, what's going on with those guys? But put yourself in their situation. I mean, there, there's, there's no earthquake. There's no, you know, Rome isn't fallen into the earth or, or something like that. They're being featured every episode of, of Dateline. I mean, so they think, well, let's just go home. You know, better yet, let's go fishing. Uh, that's something. And it's all a way of saying, let's get back to normal. They did just what they, uh, they knew to do. They did just what we're prone to do when we're not sure of what to do. They reach backwards for something familiar. The kingdom of God apparently hasn't arrived in their thinking. Jesus only shows up sporadically. We're not sure what to make of it or what to do with it. So let's just get back to what we know how to do, where we know what to expect. But even though they're returning to familiar ground or water, I guess, uh, even though they've come back to their particular expertise, they get skunked. Their efforts are are completely frustrated. Man, they dial in all the GPS numbers that have always produced in the past, but every cast brings an empty net. And there's a message. There's a message for us in those empty nets. The risen Jesus is challenging the familiar. With him on the loose, there is no normal anymore. There's There's a sobering lesson here that... Once we've followed this risen Jesus, once we've committed our lives to him, once we've tasted of this and and we've experienced this life that he offers, we find that our old habitual patterns can no longer provide what they once did or what we really need. When they set out on their own initiative to try to get back to the old familiar life, it only resulted in frustration for them. And it's not that there was something wrong with fishing. 
fishing's great. It wasn't like there was something wrong with being at Galilee. No, Galilee's wonderful. Not as, what they were doing and where they were was not the problem. But going back as though the time spent with Jesus was just a diversion, that's the problem. And this is meant to make us aware of something that, as Christ followers, that is, without him, we can do nothing. The kingdom project moves forward. God's purposes in our lives are not meant to return us to some pleasant moment in the past somewhere, but to move us onward toward the redemption that God has always had in mind, making all things new. Turning to past habits or a way of life is not an option that's provided to us by God. It's an option. It's always an option. Hebrews 11 said, man, if they had a mind to return to the city that they had left from, they could have done it. It's an option, but it is not an option that's provided to us by God. He's got better things in store for us. There's more to our lives than just those things, those patterns we knew before. So, all right, so on their own, they're fruitless, but that's about to change. We get to verse 4. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, have you fellas caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, "Uh, throw your nets out on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll catch some. So they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work. He jumped into the water and headed to shore. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to shore, for they were only about a 100 yards from the shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them. There's the Messiah that I'm looking for. Anyway, they found (laughs) breakfast waiting for them. Fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to shore, and there were 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now, come have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Isn't that interesting? So there's something about the risen Jesus that's hard to recognize. Something to keep in mind. They knew it was the Lord. (laughs) Then Jesus served them. Uh, the bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. Okay, so much of this is, is, I mean, shoot, we could spend the next couple months just on this passage. There's so much in this, but this, this event, this miraculous event brings us back full circle to another gospel, to an event in, in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus first met these guys they had a very similar experience Jesus did the same thing he was in the boat with them that time and he said throw the net over the other side you'll catch it and they got it and you know it was wonderful and, and it deeply convicted Peter in, in that situation and I think that's why they went ahead and tossed that net over on the other side even though they didn't know it was Jesus because there was a you know this, we've been through this before we know this and as soon as they filled the net with the fish, the DJL, the disciple Jesus loved, we're going to call him John just for brevity's sake again, but, but he looks at Peter, and in my mind with a smile, he's saying, it's him, it's the Lord. And Peter, true to form, he dives in and he swims fully clothed to get to shore, and, and, and there he is face to face with Jesus, who's waiting for him by a charcoal fire. 
Such an important detail. We'll come back to that, but keep it in your mind. Jesus invites them to have breakfast and he tells them to check their catch and they got 153 fish. And again, we've pointed out before, John is not wasting any words in this. I mean, you know, everything is going to mean something, but for the life of me, I don't got this one. I, I, I don't know. In everything that I've read on it, you can figure it. You, that's your assignment. 150, so the early church father, Jerome, he suggested it was the number that represented the number of species of fish that were known to the ancients. That just can't be corroborated, but his insistence was that was the number of fish that they knew, and so it represented the fullness of the world, all the species, all the people, all the different people of the world. I have no idea. Either way, the miracle itself is a callback to the first time that Jesus did it. And in that miracle, he called the disciples to be fishers of men, of people. Uh, They were called by him, not to just fish for fish as an end in itself, but to make a difference in this world, to reveal God's reconciling love and to invite people into the kingdom of God. And I think that this reminds us that we are to continue Christ's mission of reconciling people to God. I believe it's a reminder of our, our universal calling as believers. We encounter Christ and we become his followers, not to just go back to our normal mundane lives as, as, as though Jesus were just an anomaly in our experience, though, as though that's all there is, but to recognize our purpose in the midst of this apparent mundaneness. To recognize that there's something, this isn't just about like, hey, I gotta go to heaven when I die, so this is, I'm in, I hope you guys make it. This is about living our lives in such a way that we're revealing the reality of what it is we believe is coming. A better world on the horizon, the kingdom of God making all things new. We're to recognize our purpose in the midst of a life that could seem fairly mundane. Uh, you know, you, uh, I'm a bookkeeper, I'm keeping all the numbers in their columns and stuff. I don't know why I picked that, Robbie. I don't know. It, I guess it's because it's the farthest from my thinking, but you know what I mean. I, she loves bookkeeping. Either way, whatever it may be, you could look at it as that's not exciting, and yet it's the, it's, the, it's the value of the kingdom of God operating and moving through us, reconciling human beings to God. Jesus invaded these guys' familiar patterns to shake them out of the familiar and remember the big story that's unfolding through them. You want to fish for the rest of your life or do you want a chance to change the world? He's reminding them of what their calling was. He gives them these fish to bring them back to that. This is our calling anywhere, anytime, at work, at home, at school, in our interactions with our fellow human beings. We're casting out a net and we're letting Jesus provide the catch. We're doing the good of the kingdom and revealing our loyalties to Jesus. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we carry on this mission of reconciling people to God. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and now Christ is in us doing the same thing, reconciling people to God. That's why I'm excited for what the mission is doing. This is what this, the rescue mission, this is what this is about. This is about us going out and representing the hope and the value of God's kingdom over against the brokenness of this world in its present state. Okay, well, the story goes on. Uh, verse 15. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. 
and feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself. You went wherever you wanted to go. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. Then Jesus told him, follow me. Peter turned around and saw behind him the disciple Jesus loved, the DJL, the one who had leaned over to Jesus during the supper and asked, Lord, who will betray you? We get it. We get it, John. Verse 21, Peter asked Jesus, hey, what about him, Lord? Jesus replied, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? As for you, follow me. So, you know, the rumor spread among the community of believers that this disciple wouldn't die. But that isn't what Jesus said at all. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? Okay, we get it. All right, so now the story takes this really personal turn. And Peter is brought center stage in this. I mean, you think about breakfast that morning. What a breakfast. And did they eat in silence? Like, were they chit-chatting? What, what do you say in those moments? Like, hey, Jesus, so wh- how you been? <laughs> what you been up to? I don't know. What do you say? <laughs> Either way, Jesus motions to, to Peter. I got something to say. And he begins to speak to him. John pointing out, it's, it's still close enough that I was able to hear what was happening here. I could eavesdrop easily. And Jesus looks at Peter and he asks him this heart-stopping question. Simon, do you love me more than these? And he's using his old name. Notice that before Jesus had changed it to Peter, the rock. Now we have to wonder these, do you love me more than these? These who? He either means more than these nets and this boat and this job of fishing, or he means, do you love me more than these other guys, more than you love these guys? Or he means, do you love me more than these guys love me? And all three could work, but that last one actually takes us back to chapter 13, where Jesus said, one of you guys is going to betray me. And remember what Simon, man, he, he got, Peter got really, like, he flexed. He's like, oh, I, you know, these losers may bail out on you, but I will never leave you, Jesus. I will, I'm with you even, I will die for you. And a few hours later, while Jesus is being interrogated, by the religious authorities out in a courtyard around a charcoal fire. Peter denies that he even knew Jesus. And he does it three times and swears an oath. I didn't know him. And so here, by a charcoal fire, Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? And I believe Peter gets the point. I believe he gets it right away. And each time Peter states his love, but by the last time he's heartbroken as any of us would be. And the implication is so clear. He denied Jesus three times and now he's asked about his love three times in the same kind of setting. It's a reversal of Peter's shame. He's walking it backwards. 
so that Peter never had to worry about where he stood with Jesus. Jesus brings him right to the place of his pain, not to shame him more, but to settle things for Peter so that he could let go and not take it up again. This is resolved. This is done. So that he could face the heartbreaking realities of his failure, but then release that into God's forgiveness. That's a lesson, I think, for all of us. It's one thing to come to grips with the reality of our failure. It's a whole nother to let that go into God's abyss of love and forgiveness. That's the challenge. Jesus did this with Peter. This, this was about redemptive closure. He denied Jesus three times behind his back and he's given the opportunity to declare his love for Jesus openly right to his face. And look how Jesus responds to this. When Peter says, yes, I love you, Jesus says, it doesn't come back with, you know, you got a funny way of showing it, you jerk. And I was all by myself out there or whatever. No, he commissions him. Just as he's right here confronted with his failure. He commissions him. That is the strange and marvelous thing about God. When we turn away from our own self-will and we surrender to him, he treats us with the same confidence as though we had never sinned in the first place. That's, that's a different kind of love. That's a different kind of love. That's, that's not an easy love to extend to someone. That's a different kind of love. These are the people, though, that God uses all through Scripture. It's one of the things that authenticates Scripture to me because you're never going to meet a pile of misfits like you find in the Bible. If, if we were going to write this, if humans were going to write this and put this together and come up with a neat religion, you'd at least put your heroes of the faith in a good light. You know, they're going to be a little bit, you know, the, the tale of Gilgamesh and all, you know, superheroes. Not so with the scriptures. You talk about bumbling buffoons. That's all of it. All the way through it. These are the people that God uses. Do you love me? Yes. Well, then feed my lambs. The people of my flock. The people that I love. You love me? Yes. Then shepherd. That is, provide for and nurture and protect. Lay down your life for my sheep, the people that I love. You love me? Oh, you know I do. Then feed my sheep by my spirit. Be the vehicle through which I can nourish the ones that I care for. In all this time, he's getting the point across, Peter, if you love me, you will care for those who are mine. This is the call of discipleship. This is the engine of Christian community. And mission. This is honestly the revelation that Paul had to keep trying to get across because it wasn't it wasn't that clear until Jesus came along. But this is it. Our love for Jesus is shown in our love for the people that He loves, the people that He cares for. This is the main heading for the purpose of the church. Just as Peter was being instructed here, we're to love Jesus by loving His people. Loving his people. Up to this point, Peter has been so vocal and full of bravado. 
Like he never, he was, you know, the only one who, who stepped out of the boat to walk a few feet on the water. He was the only one who pulled out a sword and attacked an armed mob. Uh, he was the only one who, who jumped in the water to swim to shore to get to Jesus. This is Peter. But Jesus is instructing them that these acts of bravado and boasting are not the benchmarks of loving him. Surprising, isn't it? No, he says the benchmark for your heart for me is revealed in how you care for and love those whom I love. Love who I love. That's how to love. Like, you know, I don't know how to love. Well, love who Jesus loves. Yeah, okay. I mean, that's what Jesus is saying. That's how you carry on my mission. Not just through your combative actions or great words or boisterous defenses of me. Do you love who I love? Will you feed and care for and lay down your life for my sheep? Listen, that's the way Jesus is describing our love for him by caring for one another, by dying to our own will for the sake of another, by feeding one another with word or with prayers or with encouragements. It's you know, it's so easy to say, oh, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. Oh, I'd love you, Jesus. I'd die for you, Jesus. Let me pull out a sword and attack the people that oppose you. Let me attack all these people that are getting it wrong, Jesus. That'll show you how I love you. No. No, he says, just love those that I love. Okay, but Jesus, have you seen some of the people that you love? <laughs> Because they're not very lovely, I know, he says, I know. But do you love me? Jesus takes it even a little further for Peter by telling him that he is literally going to be sacrificed for his sake. John tells us that he was forecasting Peter's death and what he was talking about there, stretching out his hands, points to crucifixion, uh, ancient church traditions tell us that Peter was crucified as a martyr uh, in Rome. Uh, so he's forecasting what was going on there. And in verse 19, Jesus gives the fundamental command that ties all of this together. He says, follow me. You know, right away, remember in the story, Peter looks over, sees John. Well, what about him? You know, what's going to happen with him? And he pushes that aside. What's, what's that to you? You follow me. And what this means to us is that Christ's mission continues as we follow Jesus' teachings and example in life. This is how we follow Jesus. It doesn't mean that we, you know, make some bold statement somewhere. It's not about lobbing righteous grenades at people and running away. Follow me. He says, don't show off. Don't brag about how great you are or how awesome your ministry can be. Love me by loving those I love and then follow my patterns by loving people, by doing what's right, by prioritizing justice and mercy and goodness as opposed to gaining power over people, which is what, which is what this world's broken system runs on. This is the framework of the church. These are the brackets of the Christian life. Anything that isn't conforming to who Jesus is, if there's not an overlap between Jesus' ministry and words and actions and and the life or the, the philosophies that we're embracing, then it's not the historic Christianity that was delivered to us. Peter hears all of this and he gets, you know, 
well, I mean, it's pretty stunning stuff, you know. And like I said, he looks around, he goes, what about this guy? What's he going to do? You know, when my kids were little, and, you know, there were, there, uh, there were four of them, a little over a year apart. And they, you know, it was, it was an adventure uh, raising them. And invariably, we would ask them to do something. You know, Daniel, go take out the trash. And we would always, invariably, get the retort, well, what about Bradley? What's he got to do? That is not your concern. Do what I told you to do. This is, you know, the way that went down. Now you know what kind of trauma my kids grew up with. Jesus sets down this profound truth that we can't use what others do or don't do as our standard or our motive. What about ism isn't going to work here? We follow Jesus. We answer to him alone. We want to avoid the trap of comparing ourselves to others. So this is how Christ's mission continues. We, we leave off the old patterns of self-will and self-service, looking for something that's going to provide our own sense of personal comfort. We advance this good news by loving Jesus and loving the people he loves, which is his people, his flock, but obviously, for God so loved the world, so this, we can't just say, well, you know, they're not a Christian, I don't love them. It's not that. It's loving as Jesus loved and then following his way of life. What are Jesus's priorities? What are Jesus's values? What is Jesus's mission? That becomes ours. That's what we take up as we follow him. Okay, well, John finishes the story and he comes to the close of his book, verse 24. The disciple, uh, this disciple is the one who testifies to these events and, and has recorded them here. And we know that His account of these things is accurate. Jesus also did many other things. If they were all written down, I suppose the whole world couldn't contain the books that would be written. The end. We know that his account of these things is accurate. This is an interesting little sentence that's in there. uh, We're being alerted to someone else jumping in and writing in this gospel. Tradition has it that after John's death is when this edition was put in. And those who knew John and lived with him put that phrase in there. Someone else uh, is attesting to what John has written in the mouth of two or more witnesses. Let a thing be established. So many scholars believe this postscript, uh, you know, was a later edition. As I said, it's hard to say. It's intriguing to think about. Uh, doesn't change the status of it being God's word. Verse 25, however, is pretty much considered to be John's writing, and he, he closes this story with a fun hyperbole, something that ancient writers were prone to do. You know, the world couldn't contain the books if we wrote down everything that we experienced with Jesus. Well, I mean, obviously, it's a hyperbole. It's just saying that there was so much there. There's so much that we experienced. How can we ever condense it, encapsulate it into these few words and how can these words have the effect that they that this all had on our lives? But yet it does. God works through it and brings us into it. And just as we said last week, we didn't have to be there. We don't have to see the scars of the nails or, 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 or the side. We still encounter him. We still know what it is to be loved by God through Jesus Christ. 
What we have here in this closing statement is sort of a gospel between the pages, sort of like John's invitation to us, letting us know that the story is now our story. He told it up to his point, and now it's ours to, to fill up with our experiences of Jesus. It goes on, it moves outward, it moves onward, ever upward, towards what it is that God intended in sending his son to earth to bring about the restoration of all things. And so with that, we're concluding the last chapter of John. Uh, We're going to have one more teaching on this, kind of a recap. We're going to go through and bring out the highlights of what was really, really important, what I want you to take with you so that mm, I'm just hoping and believing and praying that you'll go back to this gospel and read it and absorb it even more. But we've seen that even with the words that John did write, uh, the world can't contain the power of what was written in here. Nothing can restrain that. And I trust that you've met Jesus here in these words during this last year. We actually started this last February. So, uh, and as I said, I trust it's not the last time you come back to this amazing story because as I've said over and over again through this study, we've only scratched the surface of what's here. It's one of those mines you keep digging and all of a sudden you think, well, we've tapped this part out and then you realize, oh, there's something sparkly here. What? What is that? And there's a whole new vein of something glorious. So don't let the, the world try to contain or crowd out the word that we've encountered here. Let's take this message of the risen Christ and the hope of God's inbreaking kingdom and let's allow it to change us so that we, in turn, can change the world. Right on? All right, very cool. Listen, um... You can stand with me. We're going to close, but before uh, we close, if, if I can, can I get Susie and her family to come up here? Are you, if you guys want to actually just come right here to the front, people can probably see, and then you don't have to come all the way up to the stage if that's easier. Is that easier? Okay. Well, we're going to pray for you as well. <laughs> okay. So uh, Susie and, and uh, Agum are going to be leaving. So this is Susie's last Sunday uh, here. She's going back to South Sudan. She's going to be attending to the things that are there. So we want to pray for her travel and pray for all the ministries that are, are at work over there. Uh, Agum is actually going to England to go to Bible school. So how cool is that? Jed, where are you going? Oh, and Jed's staying here, and that's awesome, and that's worthy of applause as well. So, huh? He needs prayer. He needs prayer. Okay, Mom says he needs prayer. So, so if we can, just uh, let's join together and let's pray for this this precious family. Father, we just pray for the Kujas as they're uh, heading out to do this amazing work of your kingdom in places that, for the most part, we can't get to ourselves. But they go out, an extension of this church, but better yet, your hands and your feet, extending the love of God to places in South Sudan where maybe your name has never even been heard. So we pray, Father, that you bless their work. Keep them safe. Uh, Susie's mom is going with them. We pray for safe travels for them. Uh, Guard them, Father. Hedge them in by your love. Keep them safe and secure and bring them securely back here to us, uh, to the people that love them. Well, all the people love them. I know, you know what I mean, Lord. Uh, we pray for Agum as she goes to, to England, and we pray, Father, that you keep her safe 
as she's there, we pray, Father, that you watch over her and protect her. Father, just fill her heart with your love and your grace and your glory as she learns from your words and, and, and actually expands and uh, extends uh, her contacts and, and, and the people that she does life with. So we pray, Father, that you're with her there and that you protect her. And be with Jed as he minds the home fires. And uh, Father, just watch over him and protect him and keep him safe. And we thank you for him, Father. What a, what a wonderful young man he is. And so we pray for this whole family, Father. Surround them with your grace and your love and be with them and go with them. And we pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And they'll be around, so if you have questions to ask them or anything. Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin, Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Come to the altar Father's arms are open wide Forgiveness was bought with The precious blood of Jesus regrets and mistakes come today there's no reason to wait Jesus is calling bring your sorrows and trade them for joy from the ashes a new life is born Jesus is calling Come to the altar The Father's arms are open wide Forgiveness was bought with The precious blood of Jesus Christ Oh, what I say Hallelujah. 
Bear your cross as you wait for the crown. Tell the world of the treasures you found. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you, Lord, for the way in which you've rescued us. Help us to live lives that reflect that rescue into this world. Each one of us here today, Father, that every, every chain be loosed. Father, let every bit of shame that our enemy has ever employed against us be released into the forgiveness that's granted to us through Jesus Christ. We pray that you do these things, Father, in our lives and in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, we've kept you a long time. If you've got kids in the Kids Gate classroom, you want to go back there right away. But let's, uh, let's speak this blessing before we bail out of here. May the peace of the Lord Christ be with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into these doors. Go in peace, you children of God. If you need prayer for anything, feel free to come on up.